So we're, okay, and we're on Facebook Live. So um, welcome, welcome everyone on Facebook Live. I am Diane Wong. I'm here with my co-host. Sarah Saunders, I was glad to be here. And we are both really uh, happy today to be able to bring uh, Ruthie Louis-Jean. And Ruthie is a candidate for uh, the Boston City Council. Uh, and so I'm gonna let her introduce herself and tell you all about um, her, her, her history and the importance of, of uh, her, the diversity of her history for, um, for Boston as you make your choices. So Ruthie, can you introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Diane and Pharaoh, for having me on. Um, I really am excited to talk tonight. Um, uh, as, as, as you stated, uh, my name is Ruthie Louis-Jean. I'm a candidate for Boston City Council at large. So I'm wanting to be one of the four uh, at large city councilors, people who represent the entire city of Boston on the city council. Um, I was born and raised here. I'm a daughter of this city, was born in Mattapan uh, to, to Haitian immigrants who came here literally with nothing but a whiff of the American dream and a desire to create and forge a new life. Um, in so doing, they faced job loss, discrimination, depression, uh, racism, all while trying to learn a new language, but they persisted. And in persisting with me and my three, my three sisters, they insisted on education as being the way to get us up and, 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 and part of American society. And, so and I've had a, oh, what did you say, Diane? I was gonna say, well, what do you think about that? As you've now done a lot of, you can talk about your education, but you've done a lot of education yeah. uh, following the American dream. Your, your parents uh, were guiding you. And so does that still work? How is that working now for people? That's a great question. You know, um, my parents, my dad will tell you that the American dream is a very real thing, right? Because my dad is a man who grew up in Haiti where um, kids would write on his shirt um, every day to see if he would come back to school with the same shirt. That's how poor he was. And needless to say, he would come back with the same shirt. He would plant mango seeds in the ground in hopes that they would sprout more food, right? So when we talk about folks growing up in the gutter or folks growing up in adjunct poverty, that was my father. And so when you come to this land, and yeah, he worked really hard um, and faced a lot, but to him, he was able to create this life where all of his four daughters have degrees from college, right? And uh, two of us are lawyers. And so for my dad, I mean, he's a homeowner, he owns a car. And even though life has been really difficult and he's faced a lot of discrimination at work, he will still buy into the idea that the American dream is a real thing if you work really hard. He wouldn't negate the existence of barriers like discrimination and racism and all of the things and the police brutality and the things that exist to really make it difficult for advancement. But I think he would still be, um, you know, someone who believes that the American dream is possible. Me, um, you know, being his daughter and being someone who, um, you know, I, I went to, um, after going through Boston Public Schools, went to Columbia, went to Harvard Law School, Harvard Kennedy School, and have worked on a lot of these issues of voting rights and racial justice and educational equity. 
I know how much, how difficult it is to pierce through to achieve that American dream and that we're making it harder and we've made it harder and harder for families to really realize that American dream. So I don't fully think it's a pipe dream. I think it's really hard. I think we have uh, a society in which the wealthy continue to get more wealthy. We have an extreme um, wealth gap. Um, we're not funding our social infrastructure in the, way, the ways that we should. That means our schools, our libraries. Uh, we're not ensuring that folks are, that their basic needs are met, that food, people have food to eat, a place to live, um, have a job that can pay a living wage, um, can have access to good quality health care, um, um, and, and where our kids can get a good education. To me, those are the basics, and we're not doing that. And it's because we have this ever-widening gap where we're not taking care of our workers, where we are, um, you know, we are we are prioritizing uh, a profit model that ignores the needs of people, right? So I really care in this race. I talk about putting people before profit, and that comes to everything. That's you know, the private market alone is not going to get us. It's not going to solve our crises when it comes to housing. A profit-driven model doesn't care about housing being a right for every person. Uh, a profit-driven model doesn't care that. Uh, everyone can access food, good quality food. And so we need to make sure that we have a government that is interceding where the private market fails um, and, and putting in regulations in place so that we can ensure that our workers are working in a safe working environment, right? Where they're not putting their lives at risk. And, you know, we just saw it as we're coming out of this pandemic, folks going to work, our essential workers, overwhelmingly Black and Latinx folks going to work in, in, in unsafe conditions because they didn't have PPE or because um, you know, there weren't the right mechanisms in place to ensure that you know, uh, whether they're working at a factory that, um, you know, that they weren't being exposed to harmful chemicals or breathing air, that recycled air, which is a problem with COVID. So, I mean, that's a long answer to your question. The American dream is real, but it is, it is definitely uh, becoming more and more out of reach because we refuse to tackle the problem of, uh, of, of the wealth gap in this country. Now we see some really great investments happening with the Biden administration. Um, there's a lot of things that we are doing here on the in the Commonwealth that we need to push for to make um, you know equity a real attainable goal here in the Commonwealth. So um, yeah, the American dream is real. It is um, it is it is harder and harder with every day to afford rent, to afford food, and so we got to do what what we can do as a society and as government to really make sure folks can 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 live uh, can can live a life where their basic needs are met. I think that's a really interesting dichotomy. So I feel like it's very often sort of put in a position where it is seen as sort of mutually exclusive, whether or not there are the recognized and very real hardships uh, that are faced by people that are trying to achieve that dream, like you just described, but also uh, compared to the legitimate opportunity that is found in this country comparatively to so many places in the world where that same opportunity just isn't there as of yet. And that is important to recognize the fact that both of those things are very much real and it can be difficult at times, depending on which side you're looking at, to recognize that those things can and do coexist simultaneously. And of course, like you're saying, that is a very active and ongoing situation in which these things are being deliberately made to be harder to reach for new and new people, you know, very much a situation of pulling the ladder up behind you for so many circumstances. And like you're saying here, and with this whole position is this being so important to 
politics, that's just an important civic duty is to make that accessible like it was and to continue to make it accessible and attainable for more groups moving into the future. Because that's always uh, the most important part of making this more of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a collective, you know, cooperative society instead of uh, purely competition-based or profit-based like you described. Let me ask, let me ask you a question. Um, as I look at uh, societies and I look at places, I look at a place like Boston or Somerville and, and I hear your aspirational uh, desire to make, to open things up, uh, to share the wealth, to pro help bring new opportunity broader, wider to more people. But I also see that when, when we have those chances to do that, oftentimes we decide not to do that. So that it, it feels like there are, there are you know, groups of people who have very different um, intentions or very, very different desires so that everybody doesn't seem to share in, uh, in voters. In those, you know, the, all voters don't share, even when you see something as small, it, well, as, as reasonable as healthcare. And you see healthcare go down time after time after time. And it's not like the majority of, uh, of people don't have needs, have housing needs or, healthcare needs or food needs or some kind of needs. But there are some other kind of competing things that are going on because we don't vote for our, we don't vote for the things that we need. We're voting for something else. And so we have to look at all of the groups that are voting. And I, I just wonder, how can we, how can we, what can you, what can you help us see to help us see that we're all together. We, I don't think in this country we've ever felt we've, we're all together. We feel like we're in separate pockets. I know. And, and we're in the kind of situation where if I vote for something I may need, but I don't want to vote for it because I don't want to see other people get ahead. So what do we do with that? Yeah, that's a really great question. There's a there's something called like the prospect of upward mobility, this like poom theory, where it's like people who are dirt poor don't want to vote, sometimes don't want to vote for um, a, like a tax on millionaires, for example, because one day they too, they think like, well, if I'm a millionaire one day, I don't want to have to pay this extra tax. And it's like the likelihood of that actually happening right. is unlikely, but the prospect that like you who are like poor working class will one day be a millionaire and you know what I mean? People who are voting, oftentimes voting against their own interests, right? Um, I think when you look at the Nordic countries, for example, they have a more robust social, infra uh, social infrastructure and they care, a social welfare system. One of the reasons is because their society, at least racially, is pretty monolithic, right? So it doesn't turn into this tribal of like, oh, they're going to get it. Like everyone feels like they're the same. And so like, yeah, I want to make sure that they can eat. Yeah, they should have good health insurance. Yeah, yeah we shouldn't be a slave to our desk. You know, um, and, you know, part of the work that we have not done in this country and that we need to do is reconciliation, that work around what it looks like to really understand where we've wronged each other, right? That national dialogue, 
yeah. um, that national reparative work that we need to do to heal um, so that we can see each other as neighbors. And um, you, one of the, you know, th th let's just hold that idea right there because that's an important idea because I, I think that we are so, maybe it's fear or whatever it is that we, we don't even want to have a talk about it. So now we're looking at uh, uh, a pushback. When you look at something as, as clear and as documented as the 1619 project, and now it's all over the country, they're, they're voting against truth, any kind of a truth being told in school. And so we, we don't want, we want to have a history that's fantasy not anything based on truth. And so what do we, how do we get there? How, what, what would you do in, uh, in the position that you're in going to be in, I feel it, in the Boston City Council? How can you help people let go of fear so we can start to talk together, see what we're all sharing? Yeah, so that's a great question. When I was, my first job here in the city when I was, when I was 14 years old, I was a walking tour guide of the city of Boston. And I think that's important because knowing your local history is so important to like understanding how the city came about, what you were the powers that are influencing the city. Um, I say that to say that like there is a whitewashed version of history that folks like to adopt. And, and it's because we often, history is often written by the victor. And the victor in this country, you know, has been historically white land-owning males, right? That's enshrined in, in, in our founding documents. And so people are uncomfortable with a history that is truth told, that is based in the truth and that is based in a people-centered history. Um, and so that is what we're combating when we're talking about the 1619 Project, when we're talking about truly reconciling with our history, when we're talking about equity, right? Everyone's throwing around the word equity, but what does it mean? Like equity has to be rooted in a historic understanding of what we've done wrong and the corrective action that we need to take to correct for those wrongs, right? And so you have to have a, 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 a fair and nuanced understanding of history. And you also have to be willing to unteach yourself what we've learned, right? And it's, it's uncomfortable. The thing is, is that like, it is so much easier to digest what a book says that you were when you were in the second grade or fifth grade about history, you know, Christopher Columbus discovered America. It's easy, it's digestible, it's simple. But the thing is, is that we live in a complicated world and nuance exists everywhere. How do we do a better job in our schools of teaching civic education? Um, that's something that I care about. It's something that I will champion as a member of Boston City Council. Something I was going to say as well is that I grew up in Mattapan, right, which is a folks consider that to be like the blackest neighborhood in the city of Boston, which it is. My neighbors growing up were Polish American, the, you know, the Trzinskis across the street. They were also Irish American. There was an Irish American family, the McDonough's and all of us. And there were Jamaicans and African Americans and a vibrant street. And so for me, I always grew up understanding Boston to be a diverse city of poor and working class families just trying to make it in a hard city. So to me, I understood from an early age that poverty knows no color. It disproportionately affects folks who are Black and Latinx and who have been historically excluded, but is that is not so exclusively. We would cross go across the street to the Star Market, to the Osco Drugs, and my neighbors would pull out, you know, food stamps to pay for their per for, for their purchases. And so I always knew that, like, okay, all people can be poor because we have a really inegalitarian system in this country. Um, and so 
we don't see that, right? We, we, we tend to think, you know, back to what you were saying, like we vote against interest because we think, oh, like, oh, poor people look one way in this country. And oh, or like this, this group of people are always asking for handouts, completely undivorced, right? Even when we talk about things like migration, right? And the, and the, and the forces that, create, that caused my father and my family and so many folks from these different countries to migrate here, right? These are global forces of capitalism, of, of inequity, of, of racism that really push and pull people out of their uh, out of their homes. And so if you don't have an, uh, 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 an understanding of, of, of place and of self that is rooted in a history that is based in truth and that is based in like, you know, the victor is writing this story. So like, maybe I should be a bit more critical about the truth, the truth uh, about the truth uh, in this story and whether or not it, it is, it contains a whole story. When the victor is writing your history book, you have to be skeptical about who is being left out, about the, uh, about what is the bias here. And we don't always do that. We don't teach our kids to do that. And so, and, and, and then you add in the role of the media and of cable television and, Everyone has a microphone and that is the problem, right? Um, we don't want to talk to each other. We want to talk at each other. Um, I don't have all of the answers on how we solve that, but I, I can tell you that I'm a person who brings people together. Um, and when I was in law school, I founded something called, um, the group of students founded something called the Freedom Seder. Um, the first Seder was supposed to happen the year that MLK was, assassin uh, was assassinated and because he was killed, um, you know, it, it didn't happen until the next year, but it was bringing together the Jewish community and the black community to talk about our shared stories of enslavement and of struggle, um, how far we've come, uh, what freedom looks like and, and what freedom we're still chasing. And we did that and we it was run with the Black Law Students Association and the Jewish Law Students Association. But we opened it up to everyone, right? We had the um, um, Asian Pacific Islander group. We had the, the Latinx group on campus, the Mormons, the Muslim Students Association, the LGBTQ um, um, group on campus coming to talk about what does freedom and struggle and slavery, uh, what has that looked like to their communities or oppression, right? Not everyone, the slave, the, the story of enslavement is not a story that everyone has, but you know, maybe folks have a story of, you know, the African Students Association, they have a story of colonialism. If it's, you know, um, uh, if it's the, the Mormons uh, Association, maybe they have a story that's based in persecution. And so what does that look like? And how do we show up for each other as allies, right? Uh, it's about building community and dialogue and, and thinking like, you know, this is gonna be so cliche, at the end of the day, we all bleed the same color. We have allowed ourselves to buy into the, this construct of race, which now is, is more than a construct, right? Because we've, we, we form communities out of it, we form cultures out of it, um, and, it, and, it is, and it is a way of explaining the world. And, um, and so it, it is not, it is no longer just a construct, but if we, if, if we are too, uh, if, if we uh, dig our heels in too deeply to our tribes, we lose sight of the very real fact of like, we're all human and we all believe the same. And if we understand that and can come together, we can help, we can solve a lot of, um, a lot of our problems. How to get there, right? It's about being, you know, the work is endless and it's tireless. I'm sure you, you've been at this for a long time, Diane, you know more than most that like, it is not, you, we are not gonna wake up tomorrow and I'll be a better, uh, a better nation. And, you know, uh, the cable media just distresses me. I, I stay away from it, um, but you know, it has a stronghold on so many. So. We got a lot of work to do. A lot of it relies on it, like this, like intergenerational conversations. I'm gonna stop talking after this, but there was a Globe article last week, um, earlier this week, a, a friend of mine, um, a Korean American, Sam 
um, talks about having these conversations with his mom. Um, she, they both live in Newton. Um, she owns a laundry uh, laundry mat. Um, about he started to have more conversations about yeah yeah about race and racism and it and it takes these these intergenerational conversations the newer generation to really you know stand up and say like, we want to do things a little bit different we want to have these open dialogues we want to break down these walls that we've created um, and so yeah it's all all of it is the work and all of the work is important to do um, and we all it's not just me you know I'm running for Boston City Council but it. Um, I'm running to be a representative. I don't believe in leadership from the from the top down. It really has to be from the bottom up. I mean, there are great folks already out there doing the work of of of, of tearing down these walls, and I'll be a voice to help elevate all of that. So, if I can just add or or uh, extract from what what you just said, uh, there to me, there is nothing more important than the viewpoint that you're just bringing forward. And, and so three or four years ago, when Farrell and I started the Let's Talk About Race program, the, the reason we did that was because nobody, people couldn't talk about race. It was almost a taboo subject. And so mm -hmm. the good thing about what's happening now, however you fall on the, on the, uh, on the information divide about race, we're starting to talk about it even white supremacy. I remember when people didn't even understand if you say, if we talked about white supremacy as a as a as a platform, a social it's our social political way of being and everything is steeped in it and then and people didn't understand that. They thought it had to be Ku Klux Klan. But now look at how much in the last couple of years how things have changed. And so your viewpoint and, and, and I want everybody out there watching and everybody who ever watches this in the future to hear how easily you can talk about race and topics of race and you're telling truth, 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 truth. And you're not coming and saying there's only one piece of it. You're saying that everybody, that it's, it's important. Everybody has a story. I, I used to work at the University of Oregon. I remember working with, some students there and they at that time we were doing multiculturalism in the curriculum and they came to me and they were very worried because they said we if we're going to be multicultural I, we don't have a place in it there's no place for us the white these were white students and so uh, I gathered them together we went uh, with some students of color and uh, some white students we went for a weekends and we would watch films. And I said, bring films about, find out where your grandparents come from and then find out why, why are they here? What happened to make them? It's not easy to leave your home and your country and go somewhere else where you don't know maybe the language, you don't know, you don't know anything. And so what made them pick up and leave? And so we got together and, and we did that. And from that, everybody could see that we all, these are stories and we all get together and we talk about our stories and our stories are interesting. That's what makes people, we have stories and all of these stories of, of race, it's time for them to be told. So I totally agree with what you're saying. Now on also housing is something else that you are very concerned and in Boston with the cost of housing, of course, that's that's very big. So so what do you think about that? 
Uh, you you had you you spoke of intentional housing. What yeah. what does that mean? It's also why it's important for us to understand history, right? Because when you have to understand like the Boston Redevelopment Authority and its role in really changing communities, right? Um, when we talk about the role of the federal government in building highways through communities that really split communities and you know encouraged white flight, right? Um, you talk about the practice of blockbusting, um, which was prevalent in the 60s and 70s in Boston with a private uh, real estate market would use fear mongering tactics to scare white families, Jewish families in Mattapan um, and Roxbury and Dorchester that wanted to integrate with their neighbors. Um, but uh, because of fear mongering tactics, we're told, oh, the, the, the black people moving into your neighborhood are scary or bringing drugs or bringing crime. You gotta go, the value of your home is dropping by the minute. They would sell their homes to these private uh, private realtors way below market, and they flee off to the and they would go off to the suburbs, abandoning what they wanted, which was integration. And then you'd have the the private market turn around and flip and sell that house that they tricked these families into believing were um, going to be underwater, and they sold it at double, triple, quadruple the price to black families who wanted to own right. And these black families couldn't afford um, the, the, the mortgage after a while. And then it you know, led to foreclosure and abandonment. And we see that, and, we, and, and when we're talking about intentional practices that created disinvestment, that stymied the ability of black folks to gain wealth in this, in this city, it is because of intentional practices where the city either was a willful participant or turned a blind eye. And so when we're talking about all of the investments we need to make in housing, we need to frame it with our understanding of what we did in terms of blockbusting what we did in terms of redlining, what we did in terms of urban renewal that really, really was like, you know, <laughs> um, James Baldwin, um, you know, it was happening around the country. Um, James Baldwin uh, coined it, uh, not urban renewal, Negro removal, right? Because of how it devastated so many communities. And so if we're being honest about our role, and I use the Royal We to talk about the city and the private market in creating these communities of disinvestment and of stymieing black wealth, um, then we need to be as intentional about the policies, right? Equity to get us to get us out there to repair the damage. And, and so, and you know what? That's why it's so important that we talk about we we unwind it, we research it, we pull it all apart, we make it clear because we're not just segregated because we don't like other people. No, we're yeah. segregated because our our federal government through our federal housing authority when the for the whole GI Bill and all those things rolled out and all, and the redlining, we're segregated intentionally. And that's one of the biggest struggles that we have. Why don't we know one another? Why don't we know each other's stories? Because we have been uh, intentionally segregated. And so now it's time for us to find that out. And like you said, intentional housing, to, we've got to come together. Yeah. We yeah. have to come together. Yep, I agree. And there's a lot that we need to do. So that means about being intentional about city owned land. That means increasing the uh, a requirement that we put on developers for affordable housing. That means increasing the money that we get from commercial developers um, that goes into the city's coffers to build affordable housing. That means supporting community land trust models so that we could have community ownership of land. That means um, working with uh, small homeowners and land um, uh, and landowners 
to make sure that developers or the spec that their homes aren't being subject to the speculative market, that we can work with CDCs, community development corporations, and community land trusts to take ownership of these small lands to create affordable, permanently affordable housing. We need to think about working with with nonprofits like the Pine Street Inn for the homeless to think about how we create more supportive housing, right? A housing first model where housing is not treated as a reward for doing your life right. It is treated as a basic human necessity. Um, there's a lot we gotta do, right? We need to think about transit oriented housing. We need to support tenant unions. Um, we need to do all, everything that we can to, um, to create a city where our working class residents can live um, can live here. They work here. They build this city. Um, working class families like my parents who, you know, have given the city so much deserve to be able to build their equity here. And so, you know, the, the statistic of the median black family here has about $8 of wealth compared to the median white family that's 247500 well, we got to root that in history. And then we got to think about how are we intentionally using our dollars to address that problem, right? So show me your budget and you'll show me what you care about. The city has modeled, um, you know, one of the things the city has done um, under Mayor Walsh actually started siphoning money away from the police um, uh, uh, police department's overtime budget to a first time homeowners program to help folks who don't have the bank of mom and dad, who don't have that intergenerational wealth buy property, by helping them with down payment costs and closing costs. And I'm a member and a volunteer attorney with the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance. And we created that blueprint uh, for uh, how it is that you can help first time homeowners the first generation and first time homeowners become homeowners and build that equity and create wealth for themselves and their families. So there's a lot of work we got to do. It's not easy. We're not going to like snap our fingers and get there, but you got to sort of have a holistic um, approach um, and think about everything. Um, think about how we are protecting folks from displacement. So preventing evictions, think about how we're creating affordable housing and like, what do we owe to that community where people, where they wanted to integrate and they wanted to live together and they, you know, were forced to sell their property. And then, you know, where black folks were forced to abandon their property because they were sold these shoddy products. Um, so I think there's a lot of, of us for us to think about, uh, but it has to, we have to start from a point of uh, agreeing on what are our guiding principles, um, both historically and what are the tools that the frameworks, right? The equity framework um, that we're going to use to drive the policy. So, so what do you say to, um, I, I've looked at some of your uh, photographs. I've looked at, at Facebook and I look at some of your photographs and I see that you're in all different types of communities. You're mm -hmm. in the white community. You are with older white people and you're in the black community. And so, so how do you just, just uh, give us one or two examples. How would you bring those groups together? Older yeah. white people and uh, older black people. How do you, what are the things that, that are really in common that you can bring them together? One of the things that I, that really uh, can upset me is when people talk about places like Mattapan and uh, people who aren't from Mattapan, let's say that they're from like Beacon Hill, right? And, um, or, you know, let's, or just from anywhere else, like, you know, an affluent community. Talk about Mattapan as though it's, or, or, or communities that, that where there's not the same amount of affluence, um, as though they're these foreign lands. And as though these families want these things that are completely foreign, but like, we all, we all want the same basic things. We all want our kids to go to good schools. We all want to live in safe communities. We all want a job that can pay us a living wage. 
we none of us want to be just widgets, right? We want to be able to have weekends to spend time with our families. Um, so like, I am always upset when people, like I am running to be a city councilor at large, which means I am running to represent 23 neighborhoods in this city. And those 23 neighborhoods are different. There are some neighborhoods that have a lot of older white folks. There's a lot of, some neighborhoods that have a lot of older black folks. But like, you know, our basic needs are very similar. And so we need to um, inspect our language and expect how we talk about other neighborhoods so that we can understand that like, actually, you know, East Boston and Mattapan are like, and I, I go to East Boston a lot for this very reason, East Boston and Mattapan are on the other sides of the map. But like, we, we want the same thing. We want good transit. We want good schools. We want to make sure that we have trees and are fighting against climate change. We want a development process that is run by uh, residents and not by developers, right? So like, the way that I talk about it is like, you know, neighborhoods, they do look different and they do sometimes like, you know, what Brighton is dealing with when it comes to affordable housing is different um, and homeownership is different from what um, Rosendale wants or what, uh, or JP needs, right? But like the basic ideas are the similar. And that is something that I emphasize, right? Our basic ideas, maybe what you want to do for fun is go and play golf. And what somebody else wants to do is hang out in Franklin Park with their friends, right? It's funny because Franklin Park is a place that has a golf course and it has places where people can like have a cookout and hang out and have a good time. It has all those things, right? That is the city that is who we are. Like we are all of these things. And just because your enjoyment is playing golf and my enjoyment is like a boom box sitting around with five or six of my friends. Yeah, the way that we, that we are, uh, our tool for enjoyment is, is different, but we all, want to do stuff, have time where we can enjoy ourselves, right? And so that's how I talk. I talk about, like, we're not that different, right? Like, we all want the same basic things. Um, and it, what, the minute we stop talking about each other as foreigners um, is, is when we will start to, like, really show up for each other in a meaningful way. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, um, that's what I try to do. I think my story is also true to that. And when I talk about how I grew up, when I talk about, you know, the different schools that I went to, I think my story is one of, of bringing folks together. Um, you know, again, I don't think it's easy. I don't think that, you know, you snap your finger. I think people also have to be committed to, um, you know, truth and history, right? These, these conversations are not easy and like they make people wince and people get uncomfortable. But one thing that I like to say is that, um, you know, I am answering a call to service. This is not me like saying like, oh, I really, this is, you know, I, I have some big ego and I need to be a, a member of Boston City Council. It is answering a call to service as someone who builds bridges and brings folks together. Um, I lead with a smile. I lead with kindness because that's what was modeled for me. I mean, I always say that I can come with teeth because I'm a lawyer and, you know, like I can fight for the things that my community needs. But those are the gifts that I was given to call people together, to bring us together, um, not in a way that is kumbaya, right? Not in a way that is disingenuous to understanding um, the issues of white supremacy, the issues of like uh, the wealth gap, the issues of, of how, how much we put profit before people, but it is in a way where like, okay, we can come together across 
uh, across uh, zip codes, come together across tax brackets to tackle the issues. You see that, you know, with the climate justice movement, it is actually pretty diverse. When we talk about something like the Southwest Corridor Park, which runs through Jamaica Plain um, and goes to um, uh, the Back Bay, that was actually supposed to be a community destroying highway. And folks from Jamaica Plain, from Roxbury, from Cambridge, Somerville, from everywhere came together to say, and like no one believed that they would actually be able to stop this highway, right? Like if you, you know, uh, there's this really great book written by Carolyn Crockett called People Before Highways. Um, if you surveyed people individually, no one believed that they would stop the highway. But together as a, as a cross race, racial, cross, um, cross-class coalition, they, their power was such that they were actually able to come together to stop this community destroying highway. And instead, you know, uh, when once they stopped that, okay, like, okay, what do we do with this land? And, and, and they got a park and green space in its stead, right? So when we talk about the collective power of coming together across, across cultures, across races, across uh, income brackets, we see that it works and that it can happen. It's hard, it's not easy work um, because like, again, we allow politicians to create these false barriers, right? Because they have their own agenda, right? They're trying to push it over their own agenda and they play off of the things that they know divide us. And, um, but we can push back. And you see that happening with people fighting for um, the fair share amendment, right? That a lot of folks are fighting for the millionaire's tax year. And you see that with tenant coalitions like City Life Vita Urbana, people come together across uh, a class and across zip codes to fight uh, against displacement and against gentrification in our community. So, I mean, it's possible, it's hard work. Um, I, again, I'm answering a call to service. I feel like I was given these gifts to be able to bring people together and, and lead and have patience in these conversations because sometimes, you know, I don't always have the patience there, you know, the, what, you know, George Floyd's murder was a difficult time for me and uh, for a lot of folks because, I just wanted to shut down and didn't want to have conversations. And I actually did that. I was like, okay, I do not have the patience to explain white supremacy, to explain racism, to explain what that meant and what that symbolized, right? Like that, like killing a man by putting your knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Not only did that take away this man's life, whose life was worthy of living, um, but it also was so representative of how much this country has had its foot on the necks of, uh, of black folks, of uh, indigenous folks, of so many historically excluded groups in this country, right? And so, you know, sometimes we'll need to refuel our tanks so that we can continue these conversations, but it's really important. You know, I gave myself time and space to like be not having to be part of you know, these conversations because I needed a time to like not be in that space because of dealing with sadness and anger. But then, you know, pick myself up eventually and reinserted myself into the dialogue and so we do need to give ourselves the space because this work is hard um and you know oftentimes it feels like you're, you're you're working to convince people that your life has value and that you deserve equal dignity um and that can be really taxing um but you know we need people to do that work so i i, I just want to once again um i'm gonna just tell everybody to listen to what you're saying. Ruth Z, listen to what she's saying. Listen to the fullness of what she's saying. She's, she's telling some truth here. And, and, it, and she's telling some truth here and saying it in a way that will be beneficial to everybody. 
everybody bringing people together in Boston because everything, timing is always important. And, and what is the time for now? The time for now is for people to come together around truth, around uh, uh, historical accuracy. We all have to demand that. We, we wanna know, and, and not because we wanna put people down, but because we wanna raise people up. Yeah. Look at all of the people that if you keep putting people down and, and we've not had the benefit of all of their gifts, like listening to you and you just are full of gifts and you've had a lot of opportunities. You've gone to, uh, you've gone to the best schools and you have today, Ed. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I'm gifted too. We're both. We're all gifted. But, but, but I'm. I'm just saying that you're doing this. You're saying something that I want everybody to hear. What you're saying and how important that is. Let me ask you another question. Gentrification. I was reading that uh, that you're talking about gentrification. Now everything really has two sides, and it's all has pros and cons. And uh, gentrification. The people that bought homes in the suburbs uh, 20, 40, 50, 60 years ago, and uh, maybe bought them for 20, 15, $20,000, now they maybe make a million dollars or $2 million. Of, of course, the people that were redlined, their homes are worth nothing. But, and, and you know, the same kind of GI, <laughs> GI Bill benefit. But now they want to come and they, they want to be close to things and they want to live in the city. Mm -hmm. And so, so you've got a lot of people that are like that. And then you've got a lot of people in the cities that um, like it and want to stay. And so how do you balance? Uh, and also the, the difficult part about gentrification is that everybody deserves to, to have to live in a place where things are being built and where, where things are being improved. It's just that once things start being, they only start being built when white people want to move in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been watching for a long time, uh, you know, the South End, other places in Boston, um, and, and they weren't being built up. Now they're being built up. So how do you balance that? The people with the money they need to have, they want to buy houses, they should be able to do that. But the people who live there and don't want to get pushed out just because it's being fixed up. So, so what do we do with that? Yeah, great question. It goes back to housing. Um, it goes back to housing and making sure that folks have the capital. It goes back to like, what is a reparative work that we need to do to correct for what, for what, what's been done wrong? Um, it is, you know, how do we prioritize? Like, how do we create policies? Like, you know, give folks advantages if they're, pay, you know, or not advantages, that is the wrong word to use. That helps assist folks whose parents or whose families, you know, grew up in a red line neighborhood in the 60s and 70s. How do we make sure that we are correcting for that by maybe giving them priority with certain property, right? This is a, but the problem is, is that when you have a, a, a model that is so profit-driven, um, we we're not making enough space for, for, for that corrective work that needs to happen. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult issue, right? Because we, you know, oftentimes cash rules the day, yeah. but that is the role of government to think about how do we inject ourselves enough to, to make, um, our societies and our neighborhoods a little bit more just, a little bit more equitable. And those are um, the things that you're going to do. You're, and, and the schools, because we're, we have tax-based schools. So the, the schools uh, have, the, have the money based on 
um, you know, the, the, the property values and the, the money that, that is in the community. And then the, the, the ones in some suburbs have plenty of things to give to their kids, but we all need to, we need to have the benefit of the kids who uh, didn't have money growing up, but they are, are just as bright, brighter. I mean, they have gifts. We all have gifts. Yep. How, do we, how do we work it so that the gifts that everybody has to bring are, 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 are valued? How do we value the gifts? Yeah, that's a great question. We need to invest more in uh, all of our schools. Wow. We, need, we need to invest more in pre-K, um, three-year-old, four-year-old seats. We get folks in our system, family-based centers, we get them learning, you know, especially our folks, our students coming from poor families. Um, we invest in capital improvements in our schools so that um, kids are going to schools where they feel like they are valued. We provide more guidance counselors. There's a lot we need to do around um, uh, supporting our English language learners and our students who are differently abled, our Black and Latinx students, especially after such a year of learning loss with the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of work to do and I'm committed to doing it because I've seen the full landscape of our schools. I've attended what some would call underperforming schools here, average schools, and, um, you know, the nationally ranked school and Boston Latin school. And I think, again, I will draw on my personal experiment experience because oftentimes folks, uh, you know, use their personal experience to block out other people. And I will use my personal experience to call in people, um, you know, and so, the work is hard, um, but I'm committed to it because this is the city that I love um, so deeply um, and have worked on a number of issues here and believe that we can do better and believe that Boston can be the model for the change that we want to see. So, And there are a lot of things that you could do with your gifts that would just benefit you. And so, I mean, getting into the Boston City Council is not a something that's going to be a huge, it's, it's not for a person who just wants to benefit themselves. And so not with somebody with, you've got all these gifts and you wanna, you wanna bring what you have. Uh, and uh, just out of the things that you've said tonight, you have a lot of, um, you've got a lot of value that you're bringing that we need, uh, that, the, that the whole city needs. Let me bring Farrell in. Um, Farrell, so when you listen to uh, Ruthie, what do you think? What do you, feeling what what's your feeling that you're getting from what she's saying well we covered a lot here obviously and a lot of it is you know it, it circles back to a lot of the core sorts of issues and historical events that we've talked about on this show before one thing that uh, particularly stuck out to me was in regards to sort of like the massive importance of rooting our our continuation forward in history and proper understanding of events and things like that and the sorts of natural resistances that people seem to have towards that because I've always found that that interesting and the idea generally seems to be that that resistance comes from because the acceptance of such realities that are actually true when you analyze things in history-based fact often feel as though they come at the detriment or even death of the sort of ideals that they've built up in their head about things like pure egalitarianism or pure work ethic resulting in what they experience and things like that and 
there's obviously like some truth in that, but it doesn't, it shouldn't never uh, be at the, the death of those sorts of things. Cause the United States, obviously for all of its history of not being able to live up to some of those standards does champion those standards objectively mm-hmm. and does champion those traits. And that's, that's historically and culturally amazing because that's not common historically. That's common now, but yeah. it's common now because of the United States, not before. The United States was not following that trend that started it. So even though it hasn't always lived up to that, it is still a goal to aspire to. And that's something that's should every American should be proud of that because that's something that anyone, regardless of where their family comes from, all people, uh, you know, children of immigrants come to this country and can and should take pride in that you know give me your tired give me your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free mm-hmm. and that's a j- objectively beautiful thing even if you feel as though it can be threatened at times it's just understanding how to adjust to a new frame of mind 100 percent agree yeah thank you so Ruthie, let me ask you to uh, say a word of uh, ending. We're at the end of our time. How would you? Okay. How would you like to? Okay, I should say some things about my campaign. So, okay. if folks want to learn more about me yes. and my campaign, what I'm about, please go to RuthCforBoston.com. That's R-U-T-H-Z-E-E-F-O-R-Boston.com. The election is on September 14th. We need as many volunteers, as many, um, as much support as possible. We are the leading fundraiser in this race. We've raised more than $200,000. We raised $50,000 of that in our first 24 hours. Um, There's a lot of excitement, but um, we could still use more contributions. So if folks, you know, um, would like to see our vision on Boston City Council, go to rootsyforboston.com, sign up to volunteer, to donate, to really lead this city forward on all of the issues that we care about. Um, And so they said, I'm running to be one of the four at-large city councilors. So Hoping if folks are in Boston and listening or watching that they can give me one of their four at-large votes. Um, uh, you know, uh, Haitian Americans are the third. This is the third largest diaspora here in the greater Boston area of Haitians. And we haven't ever been represented on city council. And so it's time. Um, I bring language access to the four with my ability to speak French, Haitian Creole. And I always say enough Spanish until a Spanish translator gets there. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I'm uh, this work is from the heart, right? Uh, I think Diane sort of touched on that. It's not work that I'm doing for myself, but it's about us. It's not about me. It's about we and how we can create a better and more just and more equitable society where we're all sharing in on the city's prosperity. So um, we need to talk about race. We need to talk about it um, from a place of understanding. We need to listen sometimes more than we talk. Um, and we need to be compassionate and realize that, you know, what is our duty here on this earth? And I think part of it is to be a good neighbor. How do we be a good neighbor and how do we show up for each other? Um, that's what I care about. It's, one, it's why I'm running for Boston City Council at large. I appreciate having this platform and this opportunity to speak. So, Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we hope to you'll come back again. And uh, as you get closer to the election, maybe talk again with our audience here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diane. Thanks so much, Farah. Oh, of course. Yeah. All right. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.